0: You're listening to Michelle Redfern and Mel Butcher on Lead to Soar, bringing you the best leadership advice and mentorship from around the world. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. Tanya, welcome to Lead to Soar. I'm so happy to get this chance to talk with you and do this recording. Thank you for making
1: the time. Thank you for having me and for inviting me to be part of this. Could
0: you kick us off by just talking a little bit about your background, your expertise in the financial space, and also in the DE&I space?
1: Sure. Background-wise, I am originally from Ecuador, came here for college, got my bachelor's and double major in finance and accounting, and started my career in finance and accounting here in Madison, Wisconsin. and. A long time ago, I started in the private sector internally within a financial department doing accounting and financial analysis. Eventually, when I was there, I learned how public accounting was a very key area of expertise to move up in an organization of financial management And so I decided to pursue public accounting to just have that under my belt because I was experiencing that people who had that will come in into the organization and get paid more, get higher level roles. And I didn't want my lack of public accounting experience to hold me back. So I moved over to a regional public accounting firm and then eventually also moved to a one of the big 4 public accounting firms and was working in the assurance department just auditing large companies that trade and some that don't trade either and that was great for me to have that sec experience my entire career a bit like connected to dni in a way because the company i worked for when i started my career had a mentorship program for people with that did not identify as white and for women. And so I was paired with a mentor right off the bat from college. And that for me was a great experience. I was friends with my mentor for a long time, even after I left that company. And then when I was at the regional accounting firm, I was selected to represent them in one of the National Association for Latinos and Finance and Accounting and I went to one of the national conventions. And so I was involved in D&I as kind of a participant for the beginning of my career. As I started moving up and supervising and managing people. I started to learn more about some of the disparities in treatment and opportunity and access that people have, both organically and, and others created. So, in 2013, I was part of a group that launched the Latino Professional Association here in Madison because I was trying to have that experience that I had on that national convention of all Latinos, where my identity as Latina and my expertise in finance and accounting were all in one place. We can go and nerd out all day on accounting stuff, and then go out dancing. Salsa for the closeout of the event sort of thing. And that was really fun and it it felt really good. And so wanting to have that here in Madison, because I didn't want to wait every two years or every five years or whatever my employer decided to sponsor me to go to one of those national conventions. And yeah, so through that process, I was getting involved in that DNI space from an ERG group point of view. And companies are starting to call, and because of my leadership role with the Latino Professional Association, I was having these conversations in the DNI space, advocating with leaders in the community. I don't know one thing led to the other, and I was volunteering with Step Up Equity Matters to do education and training. And in 2017, I found myself deciding whether I needed to let go of this like passion project called Step Up or continue to pursue my career in the financial management corporate space. And I just kind of concluded that I could do both on my own terms by kind of pursuing this entrepreneurial route. And we launched Step Up from a volunteer point of view, more like a formal company in twenty. 19. So from 2017 to 2019, that was a lot of planning and setting all the right infrastructure to be successful in this space. And yeah, a couple other things happened during that time. I consulted with mentors and people who have advised me in my career. I love what we have done in these past four years.
0: Yeah, it's really inspiring. And so if I were going to just summarize that, give that an umbrella description, today you run and operate your own consultancy that has two arms. One is the financial and accounting arm, and one is the step up, providing professional services in the DE&I space. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, we started with that, both the training and development, and it has grown into strategy and implementation support and even some HR advisory services because we interact a lot with HR departments. And then in the financial management space, we the majority of our clients are nonprofit that are led, the majority of them by women of color, nationally and have a national footprint support them, not only with financial management, but helping them with strategy when it comes to funding, funding sources like grant support and strategy too in that space. So it's kind of this intersection of like social impact, both from a creating capacity in communities of color to be the leaders and solving the problems that we have or that have been, it's not just for community colors, but like- Given us agency and ownership for solving the challenges that we see in other spaces, advocating for more equitable workplaces that give equitable access to career advancement and opportunity.
0: So, Tanya, you as a DEI expert, I want to ask you some questions that fall under that umbrella, and then talk a little bit about some of your own personal experiences as a woman and a woman of color starting a business growing a business. So I know that you've worked with a number of different companies across different industries, supporting them on a de i journey. Could you just talk to us a little bit about when companies are at the beginning of that journey with you? Are there ever typical misconceptions that you have to address, and what does it look like to help an organization get onto this path?
1: I think we've done a lot of learning as we go in terms of developing our practice. One of the things, and reflecting about my own experience as a receiver of DNI initiatives right through the mentorship program and watching it as a participant, is that I found some challenges as a participant in terms of assessing the impact that those d initiatives have, because I felt that after 10 or 15 years of a company doing D&I work, it didn't seem like they were retaining the people of color. It didn't seem like they were advancing people of color. When I entered the space, I really had this need to make sure that what we're doing is effective and that what we're doing is having an impact on the people that affects most. And a lot of times when we engage in business development, we avoid or we're very frank about our our piece that is called accountability and that like, I really am here for the change and the impact and that if we're not seeing that change and that impact, that you know, we can go do something else because I don't want people to use us as a check the box exercise that they are doing DNI initiatives. And I really want to see some change. And this process, I also had to level set with myself about how much change and how fast change happens. And so sometimes it's hard to measure that impact that everybody wants to see because when we engage, we ask the leadership team to be involved. And that process of getting the leadership team on board, really on board, that they can actually stand on their own feet when it comes to their own story and authentically expressing their, their support for DNI takes months, sometimes years, and sometimes it doesn't happen. And when it doesn't happen, if the company says that DNI is a priority, you have to ask whether that leader is the right leader to lead the company if they can't really deliver on that strategic priority. So those are very hard conversations to have with clients because most people think that you're going to give them a plan and then they're going to go work the plan. And that's really one of the first misconceptions when people approach us is that they want us to tell us what to do. And we take the stand that we're not going to tell them what to do, that we're going to work with them for them to figure it out because we want this to be sustainable so that when the company starts, decides to stop paying for DNI consulting services, that the work doesn't end. I think that was one of my experiences and watching DNI happen around me, that you will have a really extraordinary d leader doing so much work advocating and all of that. And then that DNI leader will be fired or let go or whatever, and then everything died. And then you have to start over. And I really want to avoid that because it's misleading, in my opinion. And I take very seriously the impact that this work has on people of color and that most companies really underestimate and don't support their people of color in the journey of this work.
0: Can you say a little bit more about that? I think that for our listeners, they have seen companies that it seems like they're interested in actually helping. That so they put some kind of investment forward in DE and I. Whether that's hiring an outside consultant like yourself or hiring a DE and I professional onto the team, how does this manifest where it's uncovered that the company's not, or that the leadership, I should say, is not serious about? supporting people that are at the intersection of these different identities, people of color, people with disabilities, etc?
1: It manifests in, very, in many different ways, right? Like one of the very common ways that one of the things you have to develop is the skill as a DNI consultant, the skill to advocate for making equitable access. And the burden of that advocacy is proving that people of color are deserving of that access or that they have the right qualifications or or things like that. It also falls under an advancement, it falls under the understanding that when people of color are promoted or expected to lead, there's these underlying expectations that they need to lead in the same manner as the majority. And as somebody who has been exposed to leadership that looks very different, It's a very different kind of leadership. And sometimes when you're in a majority culture, it's very challenging to lead under your own terms because you have people that you report to that are expecting you to lead in a certain way and people that report to you that are expecting you to act or manage them or supervise them in a certain way. And so the part that is not really accounted for is particularly when you're in the middle management space, and that this happens a lot, and you can see it in the number of women of color particular who leave the workplace and that middle management space because it's not just about doing the job well, it's about doing the job well and then managing insubordination on the basis of sexism or racism or any ism that you want to have in there. And then also then managing expectations from people that don't know how you operate culturally in a leadership space and that your way of leading might be different than the way that they expect you. And so it's just very complex and that emotional labor and burden falls on the person and the rest. So
0: Tanya, I want to say that one part of what you just described is reflected in what Dr. Adia Harvey-Wingfield talked about on the podcast episode with us and also wrote about in her new book called Gray Areas. So in her book, she describes how a black woman who is highly educated, has a PhD, working in academia, doing high-level complex research, kind of hit a place of burnout perhaps maybe just emotional burnout around being on the receiving end of the types of behavior you're describing. And for her, the best way to cope with it has become something like checking out, right? Like I'm gonna do what I need to do to get my job done and do a good job. But because of the situation, it's like beaten the rest of the ambition out of me. And making that conscious choice to I'm not going to show up extra because it just doesn't pay off. It just doesn't pay off for me the way that it would for, say, a white male counterpart.
1: I will add to that that like that expectation that we have that we have to show up extra and we have to be impeccable and everything because we know that if we're not then we're not going to be selected for things, you know, that's one of the things that I struggle with as I moved up in, in organizations because I was a model minority employee. And model minority for those who don't know is basically somebody who adheres to the norms and plays the game, in other words, and doesn't really is capable of delivering the results that people want beyond expectations. And that is the only way to move up as a person of color, in my opinion. But then what I found it very challenging was as I moved up is that mediocrity was accepted for others that were not women of color. And then I was asked to, when I wanted to promote somebody who was not a white male, I was always asked to justify it more than what I needed to for a white male. And so it's just this, the mere expectation of continuously having to overperform in order to be considered for advancement and then expected to work with people who don't have the same caliber of performance as you, but are paid the same as you, don't have the same workload as you, but they get paid the same as you. And it's just, it kind of becomes like a demotivating environment, right? Because it's like, you just have to accept for what it is or you have to fight it back and when you find back there is consequences on that too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I have to say that I find this to be one of the more difficult things when it comes to supporting individual women in lead to soar when it comes up where they want to advance and they're running into resistance. Since I'm not in the room with them, since I'm not working for their company trying to root out how much of this resistance that they're running into is about them and what they need to do differently to show their leadership that they're for the business and have the business strategic and financial acumen versus resistance that they're running into because of different biases like you're talking about. So it's a challenge in the sort of coaching work that we do. Tanya, I want to ask in the work that you're doing with organizations, are you seeing any trends today with companies that are investing in DE&I? I'm
1: not sure about trends. You know, there is this backlash on DE&I and i and becoming just a like trendy word. And I always against trends anyways, like not just on de but in general, I like to think a little bit outside the box in general. But I think that we have to, I can only speak for the work that we do at Step Up. The work that we do at Step Up from the very beginning, like I said, I wanted to be something different in DNI because I didn't want the results that I saw in others. And so, our focus has always been to upskill functional leaders to embed DNI within their own practices because we feel that that is more sustainable than treating DNI as an add-on to the organization. And so, in terms of of doing this work for a few years. One of the things that we did after George Floyd was murdered, we got like an approximately crazy 57 requests for proposals. We sent 57 requests for proposals in two months. And at the time we had my co-founder and I had got to a space where we had decided that we were gonna work hard to find clients that want to a real committee to the journey of change. And not necessarily to just doing the DNI statement and doing that part. And we have enough clients that we can pilot that hypothesis of like not focusing on DNI as an add on, but creating functional expertise like in the marketing department, how to better communicate and create outreach to multicultural markets or in the supply chain area where what are analyzing the processes to see what are the barriers that they have in order to have a more diverse vendor pool or in the HR department, what are the barriers that they have both in retention and recruitment of diverse workforce. And so what we're seeing in that is that because we took that approach of not having one person Designated as the DNI champion, but as a team, and as a team of leaders representing the multifunctional teams, that things can change and people can come and go. But you can see some of the progress ongoing, and we have some really cool examples on how that is happening. And even though it's really hard those first like year and a half, and like any change management approach, the first few years are the hardest, and then it just kind of starts to happen. And that was one of the things is that I think more and more companies are treating DNI' as change management process, because it's a huge transformation organizationally. And so I'm hoping that that is going to be more effective than other past DNI initiatives, looking at what is the organizational change journey. To be more equitable? What is the organizational change journey to be more inclusive? What is the organizational change journey to be diverse or be at parity with the populations we serve? Like Asking those questions really create different answers when you look at it as a change management process.
0: I love that. I want to make sure I'm understanding what you described. So do I have it right that what you're describing here is kind of creating these internal change champions that, well, champion the different initiatives that come up within this organization's work to become more equitable. Mm -hmm. And talk to us just a little bit about how this plays out, because another theme that we're very conscious of is not asking underrepresented people to do all of this extra emotional labor and work on top of their day job, right? So how does this balance out in a fair way?
1: The Champions is based on job roles and not on identity. So... We are working with the marketing lead, or we're working with the person in charge of recruitment, or with the supply chain manager or director. So moving away from like volunteering people to do something in DNI that is not related to their job, but really asking people to say, how is this, how is DNI related to my job? And asking everyone in the organization to ask that question of themselves. And obviously, just putting a higher emphasis on leaders.
0: Thank you so much for explaining that, Tanya. That makes so much sense. Really enlisting leaders in different functional areas. I love that. So, I want to ask do you see any sort of themes that are different across different types of industries? And where I'm coming from is really thinking about. Industries that are historically very male dominated, engineering construction and even the financial space does doing DeI work with those types of companies look different than other companies and if so, how?
1: I think it is different. I mean we've gotten to and at step up we gotten to work with companies who are majority white women and companies that are majority white men. And not in DNI, but we work with other organizations that are majority something other than white. And I think the work looks somewhat different, but the process is the same in terms of like what they come up with. So it looks a little bit different because they have different lived experiences and different contexts, but the process is similar. When we walk through the process with Step Up, it's really asking people to see the patterns of inequities. So whether it's in a program or in a supply chain or in recruitment, we ask them to look at the data that they have from the business process and see, is that an equitable outcome or not? Or and if not, why not? And sometimes our society has given us context on how we are supposed to show up. And when you look at that information, sometimes it shakes up what you thought you were doing or how good you were. And so there is emotional responses to that. And so both in a male dominated industry or in a white woman dominated industry or in a different industry, because I've also learned that just because you're not white doesn't mean that you don't have these things. And so it happens across the board. And so you're gonna encounter defensiveness, you're gonna encounter guilt, you're gonna encounter resentment and all kinds of emotions. And the other part is that we use on our work is emotional intelligence. Everybody on the DNI team is certified emotional intelligence practitioners because a lot of the work that people have to do is work through their own emotions about their own role in maintaining systems and organizations and processes that are inequitable and once they work through that my experience at least is that people have both capability and good intentions and once they understand it and see it they will fix it themselves and that was one of the premises of me entering this work was that i watch business leaders solve so many difficult problems all the time really hard stuff multinational things. New systems, complete new systems, all of that. And what I rejected was that business leaders will say things like, DNI is too hard and I can't solve it. And it's like, that is the part that I just drove me bananas because it's like you're smart. You did not get this far because of your lack of smarts. It's just you haven't really spent any time on DNI. <laughs> that is meaningful enough to make transformational change. And so that's a lot of our journey is holding people accountable to making that investment themselves and understanding the problem. I think you probably know this, but the biggest problem with business is that, or when people fail in solving a business problem, that they're solving the wrong problem in general, not just in DNI. Companies fail, projects fail, anything fails, when somebody or some group or some leader got focused on the wrong thing, because then the important thing goes through the wayside and, and that's going to bring you down. And that's no different in DEI.
0: Yeah, I find myself thinking a lot about, in my head, I use the language of, are we asking the right question? Tanya, what would you like more leaders to understand about the choice to take on DEI and i work?
1: I think we all care so deeply about our work, whatever our profession is or whatever our, world is. We spend so much time in our work. Our work defines us in so many different ways. And I think people underestimate the amount of power they have to actually create change in the spaces and the spheres of influence. They underestimate the amount of power they have to change the programs that they lead, the programs that they serve, or the departments that they lead, or the people. It's just It's almost like the learn helplessness almost for life because the problem is too big. I can't do nothing. And I always like just do something. Nobody's asking you to solve the world's problem. We're just asking you to solve the one problem that is right in front of you and that you have so much power over. So I think I would love for leaders to really account for the amount of power they have to like make progress and advance things and not be afraid of it and just embrace it and move forward with it.
0: Wow, I feel like that idea touches so many different things. I feel like a lot of the work that you do and that Michelle and I do out in the world, part of it is just getting people to realize that they don't need to wait for someone to grant them some authority, grant them some specific role or title that when it comes to doing something good at work or in the community, you can just make the choice to do it. Yes.
1: And that's one of the things we do step up is we talk about the big step and the small steps. And yeah, a big step is like allocating a amount of budget into something for a program, but there is all the small steps of just changing the way that you show up to serve people or just having agency and your own decisions, the way that you're present, the way that you participate in, in the progress or don't participate. And that's the other part is like choosing to do nothing is choosing not to participate. And that is as detrimental as being against it.
0: Okay. Tanya, I'm going to ask maybe a really broad open-ended question here. So you are a Latina woman, an immigrant, you're linguistically and culturally diverse. And you've had all of these different experiences working in the U.S. where you've worked for big companies, small companies, you've started a job. Just talk to us a little bit about your experience. What would you like more people to understand about your experience as a woman of color and an immigrant maybe in these spaces?
1: All relationships take a lot of work to make them work whether it is work or individual or any kind of relationships. And sometimes the work of making relationships work is not equitably distributed. And that particular in like employment relationships, women of color or people with different experiences in the U.S. are expected to do more work in order for those relationships to be successful and work. And that not only are expected to do more work for those relationships to be successful and work, is that they're not even recognized for the amount of work that they're doing in order for that employment relationship to work. And that's just something so unfair about that. And that it, a relationship like that is not sustainable. In my work for a few years, that's where the retention problem is because we continue to expect. Women of color to continue to do more work to make the employment relationship work. And there is only so much runway with that when there is no equal exchange in those relationships.
0: What would you want more people to understand about the experience of being? a woman of color growing a business. Not only a woman of color, but you're in the state of Wisconsin, which is not one of the top 10 states with racially diverse population in the U.S. It feels like there's challenges that probably a lot of people don't see.
1: I think it boils down to one thing. It's never lack of talent. It's always lack of investment and investment in many different ways. You know, one of the things that What's hard for me to overcome was how to see an experience. I worked on developing a program here in Madison for career development. And I did all the pitching, I did all the work, I did all those things. And that program never got funded directly for me with the organization that I was part of. However, after I partnered with a white led organization, that organization got all the funding for the program that I developed. And that they were in partnership with me on and so that just shows you for me that throughout that process i was like what do i get wrong why do i not get funding is my program not good what am i missing here what did i do wrong that's the question right like you just start second guessing yourself when you don't lend the deal you start second guessing yourself but when that happened I just couldn't go through with it. I was just so mad about now that I'm going to be under the umbrella of a white-led organization, you're okay with me running the program, but you were not okay with me running the program on my own terms and through my own organization. And so that's a flavor, but that happens all the time that we are asked to prove, or I had another situation where another white-led organization basically this was like a few years ago and I was still small and I had, didn't have a lot of staff and basically said that I didn't get the contract because I was a solopreneur. And it's like, yeah, no joke. I've only been in business for like a year. <laughs> Do you expect me to have five or 10 employees on the first year of business? And you asked me to be part of this process because you wanted to diversify the pool of your vendors, but then right off the bat, you don't even like their concept was that that I was too small. And so they went with a large a white lit firm at that time. And so it was just those are the little things that are in those moments devastating in some ways because you just have to take it. And it's one thing to take a rejection because you missed something or your product wasn't good or you're not providing the value that they ask. But it's another thing to be rejected on the basis of identity or on the basis of just situational things.
0: Right. Well, it's knowing that you're not getting the benefit of the doubt. And it also brings up something that we've talked about quite a bit in Le Desor, which is it's not a meritocracy out there. And so when you are a person who's not getting the benefit of the doubt, it's not enough to just show up and work hard. It's really not.
1: Yeah, you know, I was very lucky that those are, I will say, some experiences that I have, but I also had enough experiences to keep me going. But I also know that there's people who don't get that enough experience to keep them going and they never get the chance to keep them going. And so I don't take those for granted. And I had to intentionally focus on the people that were supporting me versus on the people that were rejecting me, and these not great excuses, because if you focus on, on those, it can really like bring your energy down more and it just creates challenges for your continued growth. So I intentionally decided to focus on those that were supporting me and not on those that were rejecting. Despite their talking about supporting you. And I think that's the part that bothers me. Like, as you don't want to support me, don't support me. It's not a big deal. But stop talking that you support women of color businesses, please, because you don't. Because every time you get the opportunity to support us, you actually don't support us, but you continue to talk about it.
0: Right. Well, you have faced and overcome so many challenges and now you have a business that is thriving and continuing to grow. If anyone out there is interested in working with Step Up, where can they find out
1: more? Go to our website, stepupforequity.com. We're working on updating because it doesn't say all the things that we do just yet. <laughs> it's been the process. Our website is the best way to get in touch with us.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much, Tanya.
1: Thank you, Mel.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Lead to Soar. We sincerely appreciate your honest, positive reviews. You can leave questions at leadtosoar.com for Michelle and Mel to answer on future episodes. Until next time, we hope you'll use what you've learned here and lead to soar.